we are going to transition our attention to the preaching of the Word. Now, because it is the new ministry year, drop my water, give me one second. Because it's the new ministry year and it's the fall kickoff Sunday, we're also starting a new sermon series. So we're going to be kicking off the year with that new series. We had our summer psalms briefly, and then we had the little mini-series the last couple weeks on vocation and rest. Hopefully that was helpful for you as you come out of a season where a lot of folks take rest into a season now where a lot of folks are gearing back up for school and things of that nature. We're going to start with a new sermon series this morning. So before we dive in, just bow your heads with me for a word of prayer. Well, Father, we do want to remember and celebrate all your marvelous works this morning. And we want to look at the, at the week ahead. We want to look at the month ahead. We want to look at the year ahead in faith, in anticipation that you will continue to do, to work, to be active in this body for your glory. And Lord, we are here and seated here right now because we recognize that one of the great ways, one of the miraculous ways, one of the essential ways that you work in the lives of your people in the midst of your body is through the preaching of your word. Your word is a holy thing because it testifies with authority, infallibly, without error, about who you are, who we are meant to become. So God, I pray now that you would fill us with your spirit, illuminate your word to us. Let us see with clarity. Let our hearts be gripped. Let us leave here with the Spirit burning within us. Because we want to see you, Lord. And we want to be changed to look like you. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, most of you are probably familiar with the fact that I'm a little bit of a history buff. I was actually initially a history major in college before I switched to a history minor and became a biblical and theological studies major. And so history is just always something I've enjoyed. I was a little bit of a geek as a kid. I liked reading history books, and so I just loved devouring those sorts of things. And I think one of the reasons I loved it was I just I loved thinking about huge events that happened in the past. Now, as a boy, of course, a lot of that had to do with battles, right? I would look at maps and just kind of imagine battles taking place. And you kind of think back on history, and I don't know if you've ever played this game, you think back and think, man, what would it have been like to, to have been there at that moment when that was taking place? You ever done that? I don't think you just have to be a history geek to do that. I think a lot of people do that. I've done it, and you kind of think, through, what would be my top ten things I want to have taken part in? If I, if I look back, maybe, maybe it's just American history, and you look back and say, okay, the Gettysburg Address. I'd want to be there for the Gettysburg Address. Probably wouldn't want to be there for Gettysburg. That probably wouldn't be enjoyable, but the Gettysburg Address, I'll be there for that one. Maybe Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech. The signing of the Declaration. Who knows what, what might be in yours. If you expand it to, to Europe, one that would without question be on my top ten list, places I would like to be in the room observing would be the Diet of Worms. Now, that's not about eating night crawlers, and that's not a little song about kids when they're pouty, think I'll go eat worms. That's not, that's not what that's about. Worms is a city that's set on a bend in the Rhine River in southwest Germany. I think it's probably pronounced Worms or something like that. It's an ancient city. Ancient city in central Europe. It's got a cathedral in the city that was built all the way back in the 11th century. So this cathedral was built back in the 11th century, right around the time when the church was experiencing that big split between east and west that went Roman Catholic and Greek Orthodox. That's when... The city's cathedral was built. Think about how far back that goes. Well, what I would like to have been a witness to is what happened 500 years later on the brink of another split. This one, more of the reforming kind. If I'd been in the room, I would have seen the Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V. He would have been sitting there with his royal entourage. I would have been in a room filled with, with German princes and German nobility. If we're sitting there, we would have seen a contingent sent by the Pope and headed up by Cardinal Aleandro, who had written an edict. And in all of that, we'd also see, probably standing by himself, somewhat isolated, somewhat alone, a monk. Shaved head, simple cloak. 
alone in front of all the power of Europe, arguing for his life. He is being charged as a heretic for preaching the gospel, for proclaiming the word of God. Even though they've promised him safe passage to and from what's going on at this event, the men they've promised that to prior, men who preach similar things, tended to end up on the wrong side of campfires. This, this safe passage thing is something you can count on. You know who I'm talking about. It, it's Martin Luther. And he's standing there at this, this pivotal point. They've thrown all the pressure of the church and all the political pressure of Europe in that room in front of him, one man standing by himself to combat what they view are heresy, but in reality is the truth of God's Word being proclaimed with clarity for the first time in centuries. And he's standing there knowing that what he says, if he doesn't recant, he'll probably be killed for it. And he utters that famous, famous line, knowing that by saying it, he'll probably die. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of Holy Scripture or by evident reason, for I can believe neither the Pope nor councils alone, and it is clear that they have erred repeatedly and contradicted themselves. I consider myself convicted by the testimony of Holy Scripture, which is my basis. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. That's a beautiful phrase. Thus, I cannot and will not recant, because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. That's a cool moment. He knows with those words, he might have signed his, his own death certificate, his own death order. That's a place I would like to be. And when I think of that, and I think of how he talks about his conscience being bound by Scripture, it also makes me think, okay, if we play the same game and we said, if you could pick all the things that happen in Scripture, what would be your top ten list of things you'd want to be there for? There's all sorts of things that come to mind. One of them that comes to mind for me might not be one that makes most lists. It's one that happens on an obscure road to a town... Most of us have never heard of if it wasn't for the event. It's called the Emmaus Road. You remember the scene that happens there? You've got a post-resurrection Jesus. And he comes upon two of his followers. It doesn't say they're disciples. It says they're followers. They're, they're some of, of his contingent. And he starts to ask them, you know, what are you doing? And they start, they start to talk about how they're disappointed and distraught. They had thought this Jesus was to be the one to redeem his people. And they're starting this conversation, and it tells us in the text in Luke 24 that, that God has somehow obscured from them the ability to actually recognize Jesus. And as they're walking there, Jesus says this. In typical Jesus fashion, like he's been doing through his whole earthly ministry, he grabs the moment and seizes it to teach. So they're sitting there kind of bemoaning, he, he's gone, he's dead. And they don't recognize Jesus being there. Luke 24, 27 says this. And beginning with Moses... And all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. This is not David slaying Goliath. This is not the dedication of the temple. This is not the crossing of the Red Sea. It's not one of those events. This is the greatest Sunday school class of all time. And I want to be there for it. Can you imagine the content? It's, it's a seven-mile trip from where they're going in Jerusalem to Emmaus. So seven miles. And as he starts teaching, I like to imagine that these guys maybe start walking slower. If we get there too soon, we're going to miss out on some stuff. Jesus starts unpacking for them the richness of Scripture. And he's not just spending seven miles talking about Isaiah 53. As important as Isaiah 53 is. He's giving them a careful walk through the grand drama from start to finish. He's showing them how everything they've grown up with in the Old Testament, all of it, the stories, the poetry, the songs, the history, it all pointed forward. It all anticipated Him. What we see in the final scenes of Luke is something that Jesus emphasized throughout His ministry. That all of the Old Testament, every bit of it, the Scriptures as they would call them, 
all of it testified to him. It testified to Jesus. Now, there's all sorts of things covered in the Old Testament, right? There's all sorts of stories and themes. Many things you could go into, but Jesus in that moment, in that bit of time, shows them the one unifying theme. Like, yeah, there's a bunch of stories and a bunch of subplots. This is covering hundreds of years. But there's one great story going on. He shows them how the Scriptures, the Old Testament, prepares the stage for Him. He's the place where all the subplots come together. Now, that means when we read the Old Testament, when I preach from the Old Testament, when we hear sermons on the Old Testament, there should be a Christian tone in what's said. If you read the Old Testament and just leave with some vague moralistic stuff, if you hear a sermon, and it could just as easily be a sermon preached in any synagogue, you've missed something. They've missed something. They've failed to see something crucial to what that text is about because the Old Testament has an undeniably Christ-centered purpose. It's not fully revealed yet, but it's there and it's going there. The heroes we see in those stories are helpful and intentional in the way that they connect to and foreshadow Christ. The promises only make sense when you see how they're fulfilled in Him. The story of God's dealing with humanity and His plan of redemption that finds its climax in Christ. In the Old Testament, all roads don't lead to Rome. They lead to Jesus. So what we're going to do as we start off this new ministry year is take part in a series that we're going to call Testify. Testify. And in this series, we're going to spend time tracing Christ through the Old Testament. We're going to look and do and try and emulate our humble attempt at doing what Jesus was doing for those followers on the Emmaus Road. Going back to the Old Testament Scriptures and looking at the Scriptures and the text themselves and saying, what are we seeing there? What what are they pointing us to? The original audience I've heard hundreds if not thousands of years before Christ. But also, what do we see here that's uniquely Christian? Where do we see Christ emerging from these pages? Now, This is going to be a sampling. This isn't going to be like a 30-year series where we try and delve into everything. We could have an eternal series and we'd still be mining things from the Old Testament that find fulfillment in Christ. So it's going to be a sampling. We're going to look at different books. We're going to look at different sections, different genres. Some places we're going to stop are going to be really obvious. going to be overt references, crucial connections, places you've always thought of when you think Jesus in the Old Testament. It's maybe the on the list of 20 verses. Oh, that's a place where Jesus is really clearly there. We're going to have some of those, but mainly we're going to explore less obvious ones. We're going to do that because we don't truly know the Old Testament. And we don't truly know Jesus if we've only figured out how a handful of texts relate to Him. So here's how we're going to do that. Some of the ways we're going to see Jesus. We're going to see themes themes that we see repeated again and again in the Old Testament, we're going to see how Jesus relates to those themes and how He fills out those themes and completes those themes. We're going to look at some places where the New Testament clearly quotes an Old Testament passage. We're going to start with the Old Testament passage, look at the passage itself, and then consider what the New Testament shows us about Christ and the Gospel in relation to that passage. We're going to look at some places that are more about typology. Typology is is a $5 word that just means a foreshadowing. It's a fancy way to say that there's a progression. There's an unfolding of the drama in Scripture. There's more happening in the story by the time of David than there was at the time of Noah. So we're going to look at that and see see how the plot develops. See how salvation unpacks itself. That typology, that foreshadowing of the truth to be fully revealed in Jesus... That means the full significance of Jesus, to really grasp who Jesus is, requires a full grasp of the early scenes of God's saving purposes. Now we get the title from that passage in John 5, right? You know the one I'm talking about? Jesus tells a crowd, you search the Scriptures, the Old Testament, because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is these that bear witness, that literally testify about me. 
That's what we're going to do. We're going to trace Jesus through the Old Testament. So I was researching this. I came across a very sobering statement by Mark Dever. If you don't get what the Old Testament teaches, Dever says, you'll never get Christ. You ever thought about the Old Testament that way? If you don't get the Old Testament, you'll never really get Christ. That's a significant thing, and it's not an overstatement. So, all that to say, let's turn to the Old Testament now. Let's ask the question, where to start? Well, let's start at the very beginning. That sounds like a really cheesy reference to that old musical movie. It wasn't meant to be, but we're going to start at the very beginning. A very good place to start. Let's make it an overt cheesy reference. In Genesis 1, the book of beginnings, hear the holy and authoritative Word of God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness He called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together He called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, you sense a theme there? And God said, let the lights be in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate light from the darkness." And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. God's holy word. He read its truth upon our hearts. Now that's a lot of text to read. There's a repetitiveness to it. We, we read it in the opening words of Genesis 1. We read that famous phrase, in the beginning, God. And those words put everything else that follows in Scripture into context. In the beginning, God tells us that Genesis is an origin story. It's telling us how it began. And when it informs us about how it began, and especially about the purpose for why it began, it's showing us something. It's laying a foundation for which the rest of the story is going to get built. Everything else that comes after that opening page in this really thick book 
is built upon that foundation that in the beginning God, that He was independent, that He existed before everything else, and that in the beginning God created, and that He creates for His glory. And so when we go back to Genesis 1, we see that what Moses is doing on the plains of Moab as he tells the people of Israel and and the mixed masses that are gathered there the story of creation, he's doing it to set the stage. To set the stage for the great drama of redemption that's been playing out. So when we neglect it, and we don't preach on it, or we minimize it, or ignore it, or treat it like it's myth, it puts the point and purpose of the entire plot in jeopardy. It doesn't just put Genesis 1 on shaky ground, it puts the whole story on shaky ground. In the opening words, we learn that God is unique. That He existed prior to. But He's not just unique and independent It's also this description of one of the most amazing events that will happen until Jesus is born. There is nothing. Nada. God acts. Specifically, God speaks. And there's something. The way that God acts is crucial to what Moses is trying to teach us. It's crucial to what God has inspired him to teach us. That God acts in Genesis 1, we see, by His Word. And that's sort of a unifying theme that we see in Genesis 1. That God is acting and creating by His Word. In Genesis 1-3, it says, and God said, and you heard it again and again and again in that text, right? The formula gets repeated. And God said, and God said. The reason is because when God chooses to speak, amazing things happen. When God chooses to speak, creation happens. Now, I'm not an artistic guy, really, by any stretch of the imagination. So once I got to high school, I avoided avoided all art classes like the plague in a totally selfish attempt to preserve my GPA. (laughs) Because I knew if I took art classes, I'd be getting C's in those classes, so I avoided them. So the last art class I took was in eighth grade in middle school. But I actually did enjoy one part of that class. The part I enjoyed was where we actually got to use the pottery wheel. I had never done it before. We got to use this wheel, and we got to, you know, the best part was like you take the clay initially, if you've ever done it, you have to like slam it down and like flip it and slam it down to get all the air pockets out. I probably slammed my clay for about ten times longer than it needed to be slammed just because it was enjoyable to slam it. So I'm slamming it, we we had to make two projects. You had to decide on the front end, what do you want your projects to be about? On the pottery wheel. Well, I was an eighth grader. If you looked at the year, it would probably match up perfectly. But I decided my first project would be I was going to, it must have been right prior to the Super Bowl, because I designed a nacho chip bowl. So it was a nacho chip bowl. That it was, this is a cool thing now, guys. It was a dual bowl. It had like a wider bowl for the chips and a central bowl for your dip. And I was like fancy with the glazing, like, the two teams that were playing, I think it was maybe the 49ers and the Chargers that year. Like, I half-glazed part of it, the 49ers, primary color of red, and I half-glazed the other part blue. And then, like, I got, like, these really kind of Super Bowl-looking block letters and, like, put, like, the Super Bowl opponents in it and, like, threw it in the kiln. And my second thing I made is I threw this pot that I actually still have to this day. It actually turned out okay. It's this pot that I throw my coins in. It was initially supposed to be a cup, but now it just works as a place I throw loose change. But I remember making that, and and it was just fascinating to sit there on the wheel, and here's this lump, and then it becomes something. A really cheesy nacho cheese dip dispenser and a dish for coins. It was kind of cool. I enjoyed doing it. But what God does is something different. When I'm making that stuff on the pottery wheel, there's tools present. I've got the wheel itself. I've got, when I'm done, that little like wiry thing where you put it on there and you kind of like scrape it off the bottom, right? I've got the kiln to fire the pot. And I've got the clay. So yeah, I'm making something, I'm forming something, but I'm not really creating it. Not in the sense of Genesis. That's not how God did it. Now, the point of Genesis 1, I think this is helpful, 
The point of Genesis 1 isn't to anticipate every modern question that's going to come up about how it all went down back in the day when this creation thing happened. That's not what Moses is trying to do. Moses doesn't have a PhD from the Egyptian court in biology, although he's probably really well educated. Even if he did, what they would understand about biology is vastly different from what it is today. That's not the point of what's happening there. It is describing things in terms of a how, but it's more important and more the intent of Moses to say, who is doing this? And why is he doing it? So yeah, we see how stuff, but the bigger point of Genesis 1 is to say, who's doing it? What's the purpose that he's doing it for? The one thing we do see in terms of how, though, crucial to the story, God only has one tool. The power of His Word. So look at what He does. By His Word, God creates light from darkness. Before He speaks, it's just dark. And God says, let there be light, and there was light. 1-3. He speaks light into existence. And if you read the account of how it goes, He speaks light into existence before He creates the sun. There's light before the sun exists. He excludes the darkness by speaking light before He creates the thing that we assume light emanates from. You know what that tells us? Light doesn't originate in the sun. Light originates in God, who created the sun. He created light before He created the sun. And He speaks it into existence, and it illuminates everything. And all He does to accomplish that is He speaks it into existence. He uses His Word to accomplish His will. And then He names the light and the darkness. He names them day and night. He does that to stake His claim. He's not just the creator, he's the ruler. If you have the power to name something, you have the right and power to rule it. By his word, the next thing we see, by his word, God creates order out of chaos. He creates order out of chaos. In verse 2, the earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. There's this sense of turbulence and chaos in the text. It's dark and formless and void. But every subsequent act of creation after that verse is an example of God in His creative activity bringing greater order and greater intentionality and greater clarity to creation. So earth and heaven get progressively shaped like clay in the potter's hand into the form that's going to most glorify the Creator. So in the opening days of creation... God makes this formless thing. So He's made something, right? But it still kind of doesn't have form. It's sort of this, this Martian wasteland. And he divides it into earth and sky and land and sea and He prepares it for habitation. He orders the light and the darkness. So He sets now the sun and the moon into their orbits. And it says in the text that He does this so that He can order time. I'm not just going to create things and just leave sort of disordered, well, it's sort of light sometimes and sort of dark other... No, He sets it to schedules. He sets it upon it. He creates order. As He's doing that, He takes all that earth and sky and land and sea and He prepares it for habitation. The earth gets pushed to certain parts where there's dry land and water covers the rest. So he takes what was formless and he brings form to it. He brings order to it. But it's not just formless, it's also void. And we see next that by his word, God creates life. He creates life from non-existence. Verse 11 says, God said, let, there, let the earth sprout vegetation. In verse 20, God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. Let the birds fly. In verse 24, God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. And I love how he puts it at the end of verse 24. He says it in multiple places throughout Genesis 1. And God said, let this happen. And then at the end of the little section, it says what? And it was so. And God said, and it was so. And God said, bring me a cup of water. And it was so. 
Yeah, right. And God said, let things become living where there was no living thing before. And it was so. And it happens. Like it's sort of a simple thing. This isn't God working with crash pads to zap something back to life. There are theories in science. Theories. The best they can put forward. This is how we would guess life would begin. We can't duplicate it. We, we can't really reproduce it. This would be our best guess at how it happens. Creation isn't like Frankenstein, though. God doesn't hook up the earth with a bunch of wires and one... The Tower of Babel is not like the precursor to the, the Eiffel Tower. It's not like He's creating this huge like apparatus and this antenna that stretches the sky and then and He sends a big thing of lightning to zap it and all of a sudden there's life on earth. That's not what happens. God says it and it happens. And before He says it, there's no living thing there. Before there is just water and sky and land, so there's no microbes. There's no living cells. There's no mitochondria and ribosomes and DNA. Not a single fish or bird or animal. No trees and plants. Until God speaks. And it was so. What science can't totally explain, life from non-life, Genesis implies was easy for God. And then He crowns creation. Listen to what it says. Verse 26. By His Word, God creates man to bear His image. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. What we find out in Genesis 2 is that for the first time in the whole creation account, God does something a little different with how He makes something. Up to this point, how has God made stuff? He's made it out of nothing. There's no light. He just makes light. There's no earth. He just makes earth. Makes the living things. Genesis 2 goes to say specifically that God takes the dust. This really humble material. And He uses that as the substance. He takes a part of creation, a really base part, and then He connects it with something glorious. He breathes on it. He gives it the breath of life. And then we have man. And He gives this man, this apex of creation, dominion. He tells Him to rule to steward, to work all that He's created, to be His vice-regent. Yeah, in the ancient world, when, when kings would, would conquer like a far-off foreign place, they would send out to the conquered place images of themselves. So there'd be a carved image that you would set up in the place that you've conquered and you'd set in a high place to, to bear a reminder to everyone that sees it that the, that image rules this place. So when a king would conquer someplace, it's not like today where you can go easily have visits. You'd go rule from your capital city, and if you were a big empire like Persia or Assyria or Babylon or something like that, you got a huge swath of land you're covering. And so that's a reminder to your subjects, that image of that king on that stone wall is the one who rules this place. Well, God doesn't set up an inanimate idol. He creates a living image bearer. He places them in the middle of His kingdom. He says, this, my image bearer, the one who reflects my glory, this is the one that rules in my place. Rules with my authority. It's a pretty amazing thing. Now, that's a serious fly-by treatment of Genesis 1, right? There's a lot more that could get said and should get said. But at first blush, according to the series we're doing, the character that seems to be missing is Jesus. Where do we see Jesus? Imagine you're on the Emmaus Road. And they're talking about, it's really disappointing, Jesus got crucified. It's three days later. 
We thought he was going to redeem everything. And Jesus says, Why? Tell me more about this Jesus. And so they start telling him, He says, Well, boy, I'm looking at Genesis. Do you see Jesus anywhere here? And they're probably like, What? what? Jesus? No, we're, we're talking about Jesus now. You're talking about Genesis. Well, Jesus would have had an answer to that question. Where is Jesus in Genesis 1? He would have said, I think, something along the lines of, I'm everywhere. You see these repetitions of God said, God said, God said. It's showing us everything that's happening in Genesis 1 happens by the decree of God's Word. What we see as we look and pull the veil back is that everything that's happening by the decree of God's Word is also happening in concert with the Word. By the Word God created. Not just by His Word. One of the ways we discover Jesus appropriately in the Old Testament is when we look at how the New Testament pulls the curtain back. And there's some really weird ways you can find Jesus. If you look at some of the, the allegorizing they would do in church history, they'd find some really funky parts of stories that really had no connection to Jesus and just really imagine up these crazy wild things about how this is how Jesus is represented in this story. This twig that talks about in passing represents the cross. That's not what we're going to do. That's not helpful handling of the text. One of the ways you find Jesus is to say, where does the New Testament show us we should find Jesus? Because the way the New Testament shows us is the way Jesus showed those followers on the Emmaus Road. And what's one of the places we see Jesus in Genesis in the New Testament? John 1, right? In the beginning. I'm not reading Genesis 1. I'm reading John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. John echoes Moses' words, but he places the pre-incarnate Jesus at the scene. When he pulls back that curtain for us to show us God the Father as the producer running the drama in Act 1 of the Bible... He's showing us God the Father is the producer over the whole thing, but God the Son is the director. We learn that Jesus is active in the very beginning. Paul says in Colossians that everything is made through Him. The author of Hebrews says that Jesus, the Word, upholds the universe by the Word of His power. So put those two things together. Jesus, and what we read in Genesis 1, is the agent of creation. God the Father decrees it. Let it be so. And God the Son then carries it out. And He's also the sustainer of creation. This isn't some deistic God. This isn't some God that created it all and then took it off the potter's wheel and just kind of tossed it in the corner to let happen whatever would happen. Jesus as the agent of creation is still active sustaining that creation. Genesis 1 if we read it appropriately, is Christ's directorial debut. And it's a classic. In fact, it's no exaggeration to say that no one can appreciate anything else, any other parts of the plots and scenes that Jesus will direct as the sustainer of creation. You can't understand the rest of it if you don't grasp the way His inaugural work in Genesis 1 with creation sets the tone for all of it. It also means that the plans and purposes of Jesus in creation, this is important, can't be pitted against the plans and purposes of the Father in creation. That's really important because it's a popular thing today to pretend like Jesus has different goals from the God of the Old Testament. You know, the God you read about in the Old Testament, He's doing things this way, but I have a trump card that I obscurely proof text a quote of Jesus out of context to say, Jesus does things way differently. Jesus has different goals from that God. Jesus really wasn't there for that part. He comes on the scene later and He adjusts how the plot is going to go. That's not the case. Genesis 1 shows us the Son, the Word, is right there with the Father at the start. They're working step and step in perfect unity with each other. There's no tension whatsoever. What the Father imagines up and designs and, and says and decrees, the Son joyfully carries into existence. 
in perfect harmony, in perfect agreement. And God the Father says, oh, it's good. The Son is throwing exclamation points behind those statements. It's not hip and cool to soften the version of Jesus. The witnesses of the New Testament, the writers of the New Testament, the place that we see Jesus, where these people that want to say Jesus has different goals from the Old Testament, the place they go to, those authors looked at Jesus and looked at Genesis 1 in the Old Testament and they said, they have the same purposes and the same goals. Jesus doesn't design different ideas for men and women than God Father in the Old Testament. Same goals and designs. Jesus' goal for why everything is brought into existence is on the same trajectory. The glory of a holy, omnipotent God displayed as He upholds justice through a sign of incredible sacrifice and love. You see Jesus in that way. And they stand together in harmony. Another way we see Jesus in this text. We talked about typology, right? That foreshadowing. We see Jesus as the perfect humanity. He's foreshadowed in the Old Testament. The instructions that are given to Adam and Eve, and Adam specifically, in Genesis 1 and 2. Created in the image. Created to reflect the glory. And then created to do what? To go live and work and have dominion and subdue and rule in such a way that resembles and reflects the Creator. And that brings glory to the Creator. And that accomplishes everything that's been set out for them to do. You get this cultural mandate. Go, fill the earth. Multiply. Have dominion. Do these things. And by doing them, the implication of Genesis 1 and 2 is if mankind does what it's meant to do, there's going to be blessing given to all the creation. Well, that doesn't happen, right? Genesis 3 happens. The fall happens. The screw-up of all screw-ups happens. And instead of blessing, the image bearers bring curse upon all of creation. But Jesus is the fulfillment of those initial goals for humanity. It's only in Jesus that everything that God planned for humanity is finally achieved. Adam and Eve reflect glory, right? The incarnate Christ is the exact imprint of the Father's nature. They share the same glory. Adam's called to serve as a representative. Be that that image bearer that stands and reminds them. That's a foreshadowing to Jesus, the Son, the eternal Word taking on flesh and coming and bearing image as no one even imagined possible. John 1.14 And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. God's intentions in Genesis 1, 26 and following, when He creates man, is that man would be the crowning point of creation and the crowning reflection of His glory in creation. And when it goes off the rails, Jesus becomes the more perfect fulfillment of every intention He had for mankind. Last thing we see. There's more that we could say. It's in the last one we highlight. We see one of those themes we talked about. One of those themes we see going through the Old Testament. Jesus is sent, He's seen rather, through the inauguration of one of the great themes of the Bible. Now, when somebody says, what's Genesis 1 about? Probably the thing that pops to your mind is creation. The creation story. Well, after Genesis 3, the story of salvation is God's plan to restore. God's plan to recreate what is lost after the fall. 
creation doesn't just stop after Genesis 1 and 2. It's not like Genesis 1 and 2 is about creation, and well, now that's done, and then the rest of the story goes on, and we just kind of leave creation behind. God creates, and sin disrupts. And so part of the great plot of Scripture is that the God who creates is now committed in His plan of redemption of recreating, of restoring His creation. And not just restoring it, but making it better. Building upon it and improving it. And He does that through Jesus. By His Word, God created. The agent of creation is the Word, Jesus. And that creative activity is still going on. Remember, remember what it says in, in Genesis 1? There's all this darkness, right? When God creates, He says, Let there be light! And there's light. And then He brings order. And then He says, Let there be life! And there's life. You ever thought about Jesus in this way when John talked about Him in John 8? And again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He's making references to creation and saying, in me, when you're bound up in me and when you follow me and when you're redeemed in me, you take part in the recreation of everything that got disrupted and broken at the fall. Jesus isn't merely just sustaining creation in this limping, fallen state. His arrival signals the beginning of recreation. We see it in salvation in individuals, right? His light to the Spirit shines into darkened hearts. And where there was previously death and enslavement to sin, life happens. Heart of stone is made a heart of flesh. That's echoing what happens at creation. Inanimate objects become living. It happens in Jesus. It shows us in this the significance of reading God's Word. You see it in these passages. You wonder why, why it's significant. Why, why again and again and again, all these parts of Scripture consistently, God's Word instructs His people to meditate on His Word, to read His Word, to go to His Word. It's not just because we're broken records that pastors talk about the importance of going to God's Word and absorbing it, of sitting here like you're doing right now under the preaching of God's Word, of going out from here and reading God's Word on a daily basis, of putting it to memory and meditating on it, considering it. Because God's Word plays a critical role as it has from the very beginning, both in creation and in recreation. In Romans 10, Paul says, how are people going to get saved? They're going to hear the Word proclaimed. And the Word is going to do what the Word does. The Word is going to bring life where there was no life previously. It's going to take stone hearts and make hearts of flesh. But you're not done. The activity's still ongoing. Paul says, you're new creations in Christ. You've been made a new creation. In Colossians 3.16, then he says, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Why? Why does the Word of Christ dwell in you richly? Because Christ isn't just the agent of our creation in our new spiritual life. He's the sustainer of it in the same way He is with creation. He sustains you through His Word. The process of recreating all of us into what we were meant to be and what God intends for us to be when, he, when Christ returns happens in large part through the ministry of what He does through the Word, through the Spirit testifying and acting. Jesus in tandem with the Spirit. Even more appealing is the reality that this story of creation, this theme of creation, is the story of a kingdom. When God makes all this stuff, He's not just making a planet. In Genesis 1, He's establishing His rule. He's setting the boundaries of a realm. And way more importantly for us, He's making a home. That's what creation is about. Creation is kingdom building. In Genesis 1, we see God's kingdom as it was meant to be. When you read Genesis 1, you're seeing God say, it is good, it is good, 
It is good. This is how I meant for the world to operate. This is how my kingdom is supposed to happen. It's a world full of blessing. It's God's people in God's place under God's rule, under God's word. So you can summarize how it all started and where God is intending to bring us. We started as God's people in God's place under God's rule. God's people, humanity, the apex of creation, in God's place in the Garden of Eden, at the center of His created order, this this perfect paradise, under God's rule, under God's word, under the call for Adam and Eve, extend dominion, do all these things, eat of all these trees, don't eat of that one tree, under my rule, under my word. And it's a place of blessing. And then it gets disrupted. And so God comes in in the plan and story of redemption from Genesis 1 all the way to the end to Revelation 21. It's a work to recreate what was lost at creation. Which is another way of saying it's meant to reestablish kingdom. It's meant to take God's people who are expelled from God's place, kicked out of Eden, and now rebel from His rule, and to bring them back. So He makes Israel His people, and now the church as His people. And He's working us back towards His place. The new heavens and the new earth, eternity and, and life with Him, and back to live under His rule. But this time the Word isn't just words on paper. This time the Word is going to be the incarnate, reigning Christ, living and dwelling with His people. I love how Revelation 21 puts it. And I heard a very loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. God's people in God's place under God's rule. Verse 4, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. It's going to be better than Eden. Even more blessing than Eden. And then it says this, Verse 5. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Jesus is in Genesis. And he's bringing us on a trajectory to something even better than Adam and Eve knew in the garden. That's Christ in the opening chapters of the Bible. Would you bow your heads?